Welcome, everyone, and thank you so much for listening today to our second of a handful of special edition Let's Chat Markets podcasts, the Outlook Conference series. Eric Meyer here, president of High Ground Dairy. We've got just about one month to go before we all assemble in Chicago on June 20th through the 22nd for our second annual Global Dairy Outlook Conference at the historic Union League Club. Keeping with last year's tradition, having a chat with a few of our speakers and panelists before our conference to get everyone warmed up for all the industry and market talk next month here in Chicago. Joining me today is Jeffrey Goodwin, Chief Executive Officer of Pivotal Ingredients. Jeff got his start in agriculture in Australia over 20 years ago and has worked with numerous big name companies before starting his own firm just over two and a half years ago during the height of the pandemic, mind you. Jeff, we're very glad you're joining us this morning. Can you tell our audience where you live and what time it is there? Thanks, Eric. And yeah, it's great to be back and uh, really enjoyed the conference last year. So definitely looking forward to getting back to Chicago. It is currently 4 a.m. here in Brisbane on the east coast of Australia. I get to talk to people around the world, but the downside of that is sleep sometimes suffers. But yeah, we're we're here in Brisbane and got a team in Indianapolis, so back and forth between the Midwest and the East Coast of Australia. Wild. My goodness, Jeff. Insanely early, especially because you asked me to adjust our time just 90 minutes ago, which meant it was 2.30 in the morning when you started checking your phone. That said, those that have worked with me over the years know I'm an early riser as well, and you'll typically find me in the office between 5 and 6 a.m. most days. Now, Jeff, we did have to rearrange this interview a couple of times, mostly due to children, whether that be ailments or activities. Tell us a little bit more about your family. And are you, like me, mostly operating as a chauffeur these days to the children, to their endless list of activities? That's a very accurate description. So I've got yeah, three boys, uh, one in the final year of high school and uh, year eight and year, year four. And um they can't say no to activities. They just love all the things that are going on at their school. And yeah, so it just means sort of constant shuffling back and forth across Brisbane. But you wouldn't want it any other way, right, Eric? I agree. Yeah, it's fun. These specifically in the U.S. for my kid activities with baseball and softball, May and June are just insane. Um, I know that my wife had put together a calendar of events for May. And between our three kids, there were 60 different sporting events or practices that we had to bring them to. So it's just trying to figure out the logistics of who takes who wherever and trying to figure out those carpools is just, it's a challenge for sure. Cause we've got day jobs too, right, Jeff? Yeah, exactly. When you do sort of three drop-offs in the morning for different things, you're like, something's not quite right here, but yeah, you have to, it has to be done. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So Jeff, we're incredibly excited to have you back as a returning champion of sorts. For those that attended our inaugural conference last year, your talk on China's dairy market, unlocking some of the unknowns of the local industry, along with identifying trends as to how domestic and imported milk are consumed in that country, were quite insightful. So based on attendee feedback, we were happy to invite you back and even more thrilled that you will join us as a returning speaker panelist from our inaugural conference. So thank you. I think the real value add that you bring to our attendees is your diverse experience across multiple markets in Asia, which we will get to later. But let's mm -hmm. remind our listeners, upcoming attendees and those still trying to get approvals to head to Chicago in June for our conference, 
tell us a little about yourself and your storied background in dairy as you've worked with some fantastic organizations over the years. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, I've set myself a bar here to be able to be allowed to come back. I've also had it independently reviewed about my sort of topics and predictions from last time, because I find a lot of these conferences, people make predictions, but they're never necessarily held accountable to whether those uh, were, were accurate. And so uh, I've given off the uh, presentation to an independent economist to look at, and, and it looks like what I was saying will happen, happened. So um, I think I've earned the right to come back and talk again. So just let you know that I did that in the background. Um, so yeah, earned the right to come back, Eric. So <laughs> my background was originally based in Brisbane and the Australian dairy industry, which was unfortunately a shrinking industry. As the milk pools sort of shrunk, and I think Australia is an example of where shrinking milk pools show where a country ends up. So Queensland was where I was based, and we were representing Queensland producers, which don't exist anymore. Um, and then the industry kind of shrunk into Victoria. And so we got to work with some of the sort of Australian dairy industry, some of them still around, a, a few gone. One of them that's gone because I did my undergraduate in China. I remember the export manager there, Eric, Eric explaining to me, well, it's great that you speak Chinese, but you probably should have learned Japanese because, you know, the Chinese will never be able to import dairy products, <laughs> which, you know, turned out to be not a very accurate forecast. But that was the view in Australia at the time was it was a Japanese export market. China was interesting, but but they didn't really see the, the potential for it in the early 2000s. And, you know, by 2005, 2006, that had completely changed. It did continue to shrink, though. And so sort of to take my career forward, I got an opportunity to move the family to Singapore as a young family. And actually, my second son, Connor, was born in Singapore. The environment then was very much about the growing demand in Asia and Australia obviously not being able to grow to sustain that New Zealand, New Zealand stepping up in the US coming into the market for the first time. So a lot of the time then was spent introducing US brands, US suppliers to Asia Pacific and setting up offices in in Vietnam for the growth that was happening there. And we um, got to work on some interesting projects in Malaysia to set up some factories and further processing in Malaysia, then got an opportunity to move up to Shanghai with Glambia. And that was a fantastic experience taking the, um, at that stage, US and Irish product. That's when I was still one group across the region. Then um, moved into Seattle. So I got to spend some time in the US. And then from the US to New Zealand to sort of Dairy Export Central. And so along the way, we had our third son in Shanghai. And then uh, we didn't we didn't have any kids in the US, unfortunately, but we start, I've started a company now based in the US. And that's sort of like part of the family, you know. You know very well, Eric, when you start a company, it's like a member of the family. The, the, the company that we've started, Pivotal Ingredients, which has grown into a medium-sized company, which is what we wanted. But yeah, so been always sort of close to the Pacific Ocean, but moved all around Asia Pacific. So you've lived in a lot of places over the years. What has your favorite place to have lived as an expat? And conversely, like what was the worst, <laughs> I guess you could <laughs> say? Like, what, Tell us a little bit about those experiences, the good and the bad. Yeah, I, I think um, going from being a student to an expat in China was fascinating sort of experience and, and getting to be part of that massive growth phase in the 2000s in China. That was just an unbelievable time. Every project you work on was growing. Every product you tried, there was a market. There was just no dearth of opportunity. It was just an amazing time. And uh, 
and my wife's originally from China, so that was sort of good to be close to her parents as well. So I think mm-hmm. our, our time in Shanghai was very special. I think Singapore is the sort of place that when you first move there, you can't imagine why anyone wants to live anywhere else. But if you're sort of an outdoors person like myself, you can only run around McRitchie Reservoir so many times before you start to long for a bit bit bigger place. So I think Singapore is a fantastic location, but to live long term for a sort of an outdoors person, it's probably a little bit constricted in terms of the fact that it is a city country, you know, so... Yeah, I think uh, it's still a great place to be based. But I couldn't imagine myself living in Singapore again, Eric. But yeah, um, it was hot and sticky for the handful of times I was there. (laughs) That seems (laughs) like that would get old if you had to do that day in and day out for, you know, a few years. Well, yeah, we get to talk about the weather, Eric, whenever we catch up. I mean, in Singapore, it's you know 27 degrees in the morning or 29 or it's and it's it's 32 or it's 34, you know, using Celsius. So you don't (laughs) you don't you don't get to chat much about the weather. Yeah, no, it's the same and it rains on you almost every day and, and all that. Mm-hmm. So, well, real quick about China. So I'm really intrigued, like what do the local population think of expats? Like how did that work? Or was Shanghai kind of a city where that didn't really matter because there were so many? Like, I'm curious about like how you're viewed as somewhat of an outsider living there and working there. Was it was that something that mm-hmm. was appreciated or did, did you kind of feel like it was a challenge? Well, look, Shanghai is definitely built for expats you know with its history so very much an easy place to be an expat you know the food is geared towards that the entertainment is geared towards that and there's some very good international schools very expensive international schools but they are they are there so i think you know as an expat experience it's very simple it's it's also because of that it's you know unbearably expensive in some ways i think shanghai as an expat is one of the most expensive places in the world to be based with that cost of education and the the housing costs involved when i went out for work i was often traveling up to sort of regional places where dairy factories or infant formula factories were going in you know places like gansu province xinjiang province which are just unbearably beautiful places in parts you know you get to see some amazing things along the way as a sort of an expat doing international ingredients you get to see some stunning places and sort of up there you know, you would get sometimes a knock on the door at 3 a.m. from the local police saying, why are you here? Um, mm-hmm. Foreigners don't come here very often. So that was always interesting. But um, so so I think in, in certain rural places where they didn't see a lot of expats and it was because the dairy industry was strong there, but there wasn't many other sort of international industries there, there it would be a bit odd sometimes. But in terms of Shanghai, yeah, you, it's it's very user-friendly. Sure, that's great. Talk to us a little bit about Pivotal Ingredients. Tell us what the business is all about and you know how or and or why you made the choice to leave the corporate world and, and start your own thing. Yeah, so Pivotal, as you can see in the name, we're trying to sort of shift people's thinking about how dairy can be approached. And, you know, it probably starts from the stories earlier where I was focused on China when everyone else was on Japan and sort of focused on whey when everything was about cheese. So as I've always been um, fascinated by sort of what are seen as undervalued streams or what are undervalued streams. And so Pivotal was started around the idea that there are some dairy ingredients that are currently not fully brought to value. So if you think about that cheese is the byproduct of whey, I think that the whey protein isolate is the byproduct of procreme. 
Um, I think there's a lot of value in those high phospholipid whey proteins. And so I think a lot of people agree, but no one's really had time. And when you're in corporate world, you know that these streams are of value, but the, the, the machine's running so fast, you just can't stop and sort of bring them to value. And so, um, yeah, started Pivotal to really focus in on a couple of these products, some of the dairy bioactives that come from the lactoferrin process, uh, some of the whey proteins that uh, have these high phospholipid contents or higher fat contents that I think are very interesting. And also to be able to take across sectors, you know, you work across all these different cultures, Eric, but there's actually, you know, massive differences in cultures between sectors, the yogurt sector versus the ice cream sector, the sports nutrition, infant nutrition. And sometimes these gaps are bigger than they are across countries. You know, talking to infant nutrition guys in Singapore, you know, you speak the same language sometimes more than one of your own countrymen because you're so deep into that world. Sure. And so I think there needed to be a company in Pivotal that can go across those cultures as well, can go across sector cultures. And obviously, you know, with all the places I live and, and my passion is for international things, of course, across regional cultures. But that ability to move across regional cultures to bring products to value and to do it across sectors seemed to be something that was needed in the market. And, and I hope that we've been able to start to add value by doing that. And I also understand the challenges of doing that, even though other people obviously see this, um, it's very difficult to do it when you're on the treadmill of a, of a corporate role. Sure. Makes sense. I, I feel like, you know, the business that we started, which shockingly was over 10 years ago now, the ability to be nimble, I think, has been a real benefit for us versus some of our competition or being able to kind of get involved quicker. It's been easier. So I'm so impressed with what you've been able to do in your career and grow as well. So this year we have you back and talking about China again, but less on the demand side. Although I'm sure you'll get plenty of questions about when's China's demand coming back, but we're gonna have you focus a little bit more about the supply side, because that's been important here since the pandemic. Tell us a little bit more or give us a little bit of a teaser as to what you'll be focusing on as it pertains to China at this year's conference. Yeah, so obviously last year we sort of focused in on if you don't have former colleagues, you can't pick up the phone and see what's happening in China. What are some of the sort of available transparent indicators that you can look at as a lead indicator for what's coming, right? And that's that I think was helpful because people are like, okay, I can access all that information any day and I can get a sense of what's coming, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing that China does is obviously works in these five-year tranches of policy. And the 14th five-year policy has been announced. And these are very insightful in terms of what's coming because whatever Beijing says will come, will eventually happen. It's just a matter of timing. So often they set very ambitious numbers and that doesn't happen in time. And so people can sometimes dismiss it. But China has told us clearly everything it's going to do in the dairy space. And it's executed all of those things, but sometimes with a lag, right? So, you know, they said they were going to reduce the amount of infant formula brands. They were going to grow domestic production. They were going to grow some domestic champions, um, which is, you know, obviously Illy and Mongyu has uh, definitely filled that. So I'll be diving into a little bit about the current five-year plan and what it says China is going to do. We'll be taking some surveys of key people in China to be able to feedback 
what about people who live in this in China every day? What do, do they believe this is going to happen? And if they do, when? Mm-hmm. And then what should we be positioning ourselves as an industry to be able to participate in that so that we've got the wind behind us rather than in front of us in terms of what we're producing and what we're focusing on and what we can potentially do together as an industry to take advantage of that? So the uh, that's going to be part of the focus, Eric, is around um, what is coming and, and why are they driving this way and what does it mean for us? Sure. In addition, when we first had our brainstorming session on the more important topics to cover within Asia and not just focusing on China, we also thought looking at Southeast Asia, as well as the impact of higher interest rates, borrowing costs on market participants within the region, what kind of flavor can you provide as to how things are changing within those markets because of that and other factors? Once again, there's sort of mixed signals here, right? So and so breaking those apart, why are there mixed signals and what should we be looking at? In Southeast Asia, it's such a, uh, a trifurcated market. You have the domestic premium market, you have the domestic sort of standard market, and then you have this export production. And that export production is not insignificant. So, you know, the amount of skim milk powder that goes into Malaysia that goes into making sweet and condensed milk that then goes to sub-Saharan Africa, to Myanmar, to other countries, is a huge business, you know, hundreds of thousands of tonnes. And those interest rate hikes you mentioned have had a huge impact on those end customers' ability to run their businesses, for those brand owners to run their businesses. So when we see the Southeast Asian numbers go down and then we look at the scan data in terms of retail in Malaysia, it doesn't reconcile. Well, that's because of this significant export market. So I think as an industry, we have to sort of look to where the product goes and look then beyond that where that product goes to understand those markets. So I hope to give people some insight into what to look for for that, how to track that, so that you can see, well, the Southeast Asia demand is X, but the re-export demand is Y. And so that's why we're seeing what we're seeing. And so, you know, the re-exporting markets, Thailand, Malaysia, the import markets, Indonesia, Myanmar, for these products. And also China to a degree, you know, a lot of the China skim does go into making um, creamers that do end up in Russia. And once again, non-dairy creamers um, in Southeast Asia that end up around the world, you know, and so so we've got some numbers and some some insights and some end products we can show people that give a flavor for that and give the audience a way to sort of interact with those numbers and have visibility. Okay, my product goes to here, that product goes to there and what's happening with those markets. That's great. Awesome. I'm so looking forward to it. So last question. So many places you've lived in and visited but then there's Chicago, where you're coming back to next month. It's where I live, but I know you've been here numerous times. For those listeners coming into Chicago, whether for the conference or just in general, Jeff, what is something to you that is can't miss when you're here, whether it's an attraction or food or, or something else? I think Chicago in summer has to be one of the greatest cities in the world, right? I don't think it could be beaten. So you've definitely got a fan in Chicago. Yeah, I think um, when you when you go for work, you often uh, don't get to do a lot of sort of tourist things along the way, but Chicago is sort of user-friendly for that. The, the architecture tour, the river tour is genuinely well put together. You know, yeah. it's a very good tour. 
sometimes these touristy things don't really live up to the expectations. But I think the architecture river tour is is a must do. It's definitely on the list. As a dairy guy, you've got to try the deep dish pizza, <laughs> right, and get into that debate. I think getting abused at Ed DeBevix is fun. You know, that's something <laughs> uh, <laughs> I usually recommend. And, uh, you know, I think it's sort of old school and, and it's kind of a little bit dated in some ways, but it's still hilarious. So I think, you know, that's that's worth a walk down the road for a burger and, and a mild dose of abuse. And uh, the blues scene there is is obviously you've got the sort of tourist section and you've got the other sections. I think sure. you need to get into some sort of evening activity at a blues venue. And some of the best Cuban food I've had, strangely, has actually been in Chicago. Um, so, you know, find find a blues venue, find some, go, go beforehand for a nice Cuban meal, head into uh, some blues bars. That can't be a bad thing either, Eric, I think. That's and, right. And uh, I think... Uh, you can't go far wrong in Chicago, but that would be my list. Yeah, I did not expect such a robust answer. So I appreciate that. No worries. Well, Jeff, I am so grateful for your time today and incredibly excited to have you back as one of our esteemed speakers and panelists at this year's High Ground Dairy Global Outlook Conference taking place here in Chicago, June 20th through the 22nd. Listener, if you have not yet registered or have not told all of your industry colleagues about this event, I would highly recommend that you and your friends visit our website at highgrounddairy.com forward slash conference and take care of that today. More podcasts like this showcasing additional speakers are set to air in the next couple of weeks. So stay tuned. 